You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. jumping today back into the Gospel of Mark. Um, we, we, if you guys don't know, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse for a long time, since the fall, and we took a break um, at Easter. So we stopped on Easter Sunday, and then we did a little mini-series. All our churches hit pause on Mark for a month, uh, essentially, and, and kind of did our own thing, which on a side note, I would strongly suggest you go check that out. You can uh, listen to Mid Cities series on gospel worship, and you can listen on the app. You can listen to our series on rec- gospel reconciliation on the app. And you can listen to the Gatherings series on gospel marriage um, on their website, uh, thegathering.india. I don't actually know. I should know that. I think it's .in. I think it is. Anyway, uh, that's that's going on. Um, so check that out. But we're back in the Gospel Mark, and if if you're the sort of person that cares about this sort of thing. Uh, you'll notice we kind of changed the visuals that we're using around the book of Mark. And, and the reason is this, we, we want to we give, and this is a long enough book that we want to give different sections of it different emphasis. And so when we started Mark, we really grabbed a hold of this phrase in Mark 1.1, this idea of the beginning of the gospel, right? And we talked about what was the genesis of your experience of God's work in your life, the the redemptive gospel work, when did you begin to feel the beginning of that? And, and we talked through kind of the beginnings of Christ's ministry, his invasion into this broken and cursed world, and the new and beautiful and freeing and exciting things he was declaring to the world around him. And now uh, we're at a point in Mark where his ministry is really established. The message he has, the things he's doing are very clear-cut at this point. And, and we're going to kind of transition our focus a little bit. We're using this phrase, toward the cross, to talk about this section of Mark. And the reason is this. Essentially, as soon as you get into Mark chapter 3, Jesus purposefully and intentionally sets himself at such extreme odds with the religious leaders of his day that he's left no option open for himself except execution. And that sounds intense to say it that way, but that is the way Mark tells us the story, that early on in his ministry, Jesus very purposefully put himself at tension and odds, escalating with religious leaders to the point that they finally just say, we've got to kill this guy. And they begin plotting to get rid of him. And what we'll see as we move through the next six or seven chapters of Mark is that Jesus is very purposefully pointing his ministry toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. He, he understands even at this point why he's here and what he's doing. And we're going to see that with greater and greater intensity as Jesus begins to more boldly proclaim his deity, his power, the purpose of his time here on earth, and ultimately the purpose of the Christian life to pick up the cross and follow after Jesus. So we're going to see that escalate as we move forward. So today we're transitioning into Mark chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you today, I would highly suggest 
you grab one of our house Bibles because there is just something better about reading it than putting it on the app. And not that I'm trying to be an old man and guilt you for having your Bible app on your phone. That's awesome. You can do that. I just, I just like the, the pages, you know? It's, it's good. So we're in Mark chapter 5. We're going to start in the first verse. The first verse of the fifth chapter of the gospel, according to Mark, tells us this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles to pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it to the city and to the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home and tell your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim to the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And this is the word of the Lord. So if you don't uh, see it, this is like the Shocktober spooktacular story of Mark. This is like Jesus' Halloween special, uh, kind of the spooky story. And and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But let me put us back in the context of the story. So if you recall, Jesus is, is doing his ministry in the northern part of Palestine in Galilee, which, by the way, if you're not super into Bible geography, Congratulations, you're not a nerd. But uh, you should be a little bit because it actually illuminates the story a lot. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. If you have any kind of like, you know, Bible you bought at a store, most often they have a couple maps in the back. And it's worthwhile when you're in a story like this that, that has a bunch of location names to actually look at the map and see where you're at. So remember, Jesus' ministry takes place mostly in the northern part of Palestine, in Galilee. 
Uh, it's, this, it's this area, like and you guys have heard this before, right? That, that under Roman rule, uh, Israel, what was formerly Israel and, and Judah, is kind of separated into multiple sections. And really, you only have like, like a lot of pure, strong Jewish culture happening in the north and in the south, in Galilee and in Judea, and, and to some extent in Idumea below Judea. And there's Samaria in the middle, and you know we all know about how Jews hated Samarians and blah, blah, blah. But Jesus does most of his ministry in the north, around the Sea of Galilee. His home base is set up in the city Capernaum, which is on the shore of the the Sea of Galilee. And most of what we've read about Jesus up to this point, in fact, everything except his baptism, has happened around the Sea of Galilee in that area. That's where Jesus has been ministering up to this point. So you guys recall in our story that after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus began to minister and to preach, and his message was simple. Repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? He was saying God's doing something new. You can be a part of it. Stop whatever you're doing and just be a part of this new thing God is doing. And then Jesus begins to back up that ministry by doing miracles. He's proclaiming God's doing something new. He's bringing something new. You can be a part of it. And he shows the reality of that by healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons and then preaching to anyone who will listen. And so he's gathered this this massive mob of followers who come to hear him teach. And if you recall kind of the immediate story behind this is one day Jesus gets up and he preaches to the mob from a boat. There's this actual place in the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee called the Bay of Parables where there's kind of this gravel beach inlet with with these long, like these large kind of cliffs around it. And you can gather thousands of people on the beach. And if you get on a boat and get out about 100 feet, you can speak about like this with no amplification and everyone on the beach will hear you. And so Jesus preaches to the mob from a boat. We read about that. He gives, he starts to preach to them in parables. And we spent time talking about why Jesus would center his teaching on parabolic ministry, right? This whole idea of who has eyes to see, who has ears to hear. And so he spends an entire day on the boat in the sun preaching to this group. And when things start to wind down, he's so exhausted that he turns to his apostles and he says, guys, I can't go ashore tonight. Let's, let's head across the sea and let's camp out somewhere in a different town. Because he knows the minute his foot touches the beach, the mob's going to be around him. Heal me, heal my cousin, heal my friend. Do this, do this, do this, do these miracles. And, and honestly, Jesus is spent. And so they head out across the sea at sundown, right? The sun is setting. It's the end of the day. They head out across the sea and this massive storm whips up. And, and Mark presents this storm as 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 literally demonic in power, as this supernatural storm that's threatening to kill them. Jesus is sleeping through it because he's so exhausted as the boat is sinking. Everyone's freaking out. They wake up Jesus. He stands up, rebukes the storm, and the very earth and creation and weather submit to Jesus's word, right? The storm calms, the sea is calm, and they continue to make their way across the sea with all his disciples kind of staring at him like, who the heck is this guy? And that's where our story picks up. They make it across to the other side. They land in the region of the Gerasenes. And this is part of 
the larger kind of province of Syria called the Decapolis. It's the piece that sits east of the Jordan River. And it's a long, narrow province that's made up of 10 independent Greek-style cities. It's a very, very Gentile place. There's very little Jewish influence in the Decapolis. And uh, they, it's really confusing if you look on your Bible map because all their cities start with Gur. Geresa, Gerada, Gur. It's, it's just poor choice of naming. But they land at the northmost region, uh, the northmost one of these little cities. And, and, and we actually have, like, we have really good archaeological evidence of where it's at. And it's, it's really interesting. It's kind of a lot of cliffs and some, some limestone natural caves that were used as tombs. Um, and then there's some, some kind of grazing area and there's some fields that could be cultivated. It's, it's, it's a good area for settlement right along the beach. But the actual city was set back from the beachhead, as it were, maybe, maybe eight or nine miles. And so when Jesus and his friends land, when they, when they get to the other side, keep in mind, it is night at this point right? It's, it's dark, it's spooky, right? You kind of the Scooby-Doo music playing in the background. <laughs> they, they arrive there, and they're amongst the tombs. They're in the graveyard. You can see like the mist, you know, and you hear a wolf howling in the background sort of thing. And this demon-possessed man runs up to them going crazy. It's, it's, it's kind of how the scene starts. I, I, I want to be quick when I say this because it tells us they're in the region of the city, but they're not like, it's not like they pulled up to a dock, right? Like they're kind of in the middle of nowhere. They landed their boat near the graveyard. This is not a place where you could walk into like a hipstery B&B and order some fresh avocado on toast. Like this is, this is not a great place to be. This is the spooky place. And evidenced by the fact that there's a demon-possessed man running around. And so, so this is, this is let, let me kind of walk us back to the story, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab a couple things contextually, and then, and then we're going to see where that takes us today. So this demon-possessed man runs up to Jesus. He's, he's going crazy, kind of shouting at him. There's this whole thing back and forth. And I think it's really important to note here that this is the most space that Mark devotes to an exorcism. It's really interesting. And it's interesting for a reason that makes us a little bit uncomfortable that Mark kind of draws this exorcism story out. Up until this point, when there's an exorcism, someone with a demon walks up and Jesus is like, get out. And they do. And that's it. But in this story, this guy runs up and he's screaming to Jesus and Jesus tells him to get out. And then he starts bargaining. Right? That's interesting. It's an interesting way to, that Mark tells the story that as the demon's running up going crazy, Jesus is saying, actively saying, get out of the man, and the demon's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's talk about this for a minute. And you even see Jesus kind of go, who are you? <laughs> right? Like, what's going on here? What's your name? And that's where you get the drop in the story where the demon looks at him and goes, well, my name is Legion, for we are many. And it's super creepy, right? But what he lets on is, oh, I'm not just demon-possessed. There is a legion of demons that have taken residency in this man. There is an army of Satan present in this dude. That's intense. I mean, a legion, like talking multiple thousands of soldiers in a legion, like five, 6,000 soldiers. 
And this guy says, within me is a legion, Satan's army. This is who's come to meet Jesus at the shore. After his life and death experience, after his exhaustion, in the middle of the night where he's come to get rest, he gets on the shore and comes face to face with a detachment of Satan's army, right? It's intense. And look at the way they describe this man. This man is well known and living a tormented life. No one could bind him anymore. He had often been bound with chains and shackles, and he had ripped them to pieces. The, the language here is eerily reminiscent of the story we read a couple weeks ago of Samson, right? Where the Spirit of God rushes upon Samson, and all of a sudden, bindings are like charred flax to him. And, and Mark kind of gives us some of that same in imagery that the, the spirits of the kingdom of Satan have come upon this man and bound him and owned him and nothing can bind him and he breaks chains and shackles and he can't be controlled and he lives wild out amongst the tombs screaming and cutting himself, right? The, the image here is of a hellish existence where this man is being tormented by the forces of evil that are to have authority over his person, over his body, right? It's a, it's a very grim scene. And Jesus tells him to get out, and it starts bargaining with him. What do you want, what do you want to do with me? Are you here to torture me? Don't torture me. Send me send, don't send me out of this land. The, when he uses that phrase, don't send me out of this country, uh, the way you can, if you, if you look at that in the original, he's, he's a, this legion of demons is essentially saying, don't banish us out of this world. We're enjoying ourselves too much. And Jesus kind of looks at him, and, and, and you can just kind of picture this, right? This, this tense scene where the army of Satan has presented itself to Jesus. And although there is this immediate submission, there's also this strength that Mark is presenting here. Where Jesus hasn't just snapped his fingers and solved the problem. There is a show of strength pushing against the authority of Jesus. And so as they kind of face off, right? Even in surrender, Legion is trying to show his authority and get sway and get his way. Don't banish me from this world. Send me into the pigs. You don't care about pigs. They're unclean. They're, they're whatever. And so Jesus does. He allows the spirits to go into the pigs, and it tells us 2,000 pigs go crazy and run off a cliff into the ocean and drown. And then the guy's free, right? And, and the story goes from there. And, and, and this part is, is, is interesting to us. The, the story goes from there, right? The, the herdsmen of the pigs, they go and they tell everyone, and people show up because they're freaked out about this. And when they arrive, they find Jesus and the man sitting at his feet, sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind and clothed, free, right? They see this man who's been tortured and tormented, freed and alive, and it freaks them out. It freaks them out. They're afraid. They hear what's going on. They hear about, they, you know, hear about the dead pigs at the bottom of the ocean. They're like, you need to leave. We don't, we can't, you need to get out of here. This is too much. Go back where you came from. And so Jesus does. And that's, that's kind of the story, right? Like he shows up, he's looking for some rest. He's looking for a nap spot. He shows up, gets confronted by Satan's army, rebukes it, has victory over it. And then everyone freaks out and tells him to leave, 
And he does. End of story, right? Well, there's a couple things here that I think, I think are important for us to see. The, the, the biggest one is this. This story is purposefully set to run parallel to the story of the calming of the storm. They, they show us similar aspects of the person and message of Jesus. And they, they, he, Mark uses common language and common themes as these stories kind of run parallel to each other. And it draws out a couple really interesting points about who Jesus is and what he's doing. The first one is this. Both stories are about a confrontation between the person of Jesus and the authority and power of Satan. Right? In Mark's worldview... There's no such thing as a world without spiritual warfare. Every, every aspect of life has spiritual significance. And so when Mark tells the story of Jesus, he tells it from the perspective of these spiritual realities, right? And if you recall, uh, in Jesus' parable ministry right before that, when he's, when he's teaching in, in, in the home in Capernaum, he speaks very bluntly about his intent for the spiritual realities of the world. Remember, he says, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house unless he first binds him. Remember this? Jesus essentially says Satan has control over this world and he has no worries about his control being broken because he's strong. But I'm stronger. And I'm going to come in and I'm going to tie him up and I'm going to take whatever I want. And he won't be able to stop me. This is, this is kind of some of the context Jesus puts around his ministry where he says, Satan thinks he owns this place. And he's really strong and he exerts a ton of authority, but he can't touch me. I'm going to tie him up and I'm going to plunder him. And he won't be able to do anything. I'm going to take back my children and my people and my creation and he'll have to sit by idly and watch because he can't stop me. Jesus is the stronger strong man, right? And then as he goes out across the ocean in this, this seemingly demonic storm, right? The, this expression of Satan's authority over a cursed and broken world seeks to destroy Jesus. He stands up in his divine authority and says, be quiet. And it does. The very wind and waves submit to his word. You see, in that boat, in front of his disciples, Jesus boldly proclaimed, I am God, and there is nothing that anyone can do about that. That's part of the power of the story, is that Jesus is boldly proclaiming his power and authority, and he is backing it up by just squishing Satan's attempts against him. And it freaks out his disciples understandably, right? All of a sudden, they're trying to make mental shifts from we're following this awesome rabbi who's connected to the Spirit of God, who's probably a prophet, who's speaking about God's redemption of Israel to, oh, wait a minute, this is God. Remember we talked about sitting at a park bench eating your lunch and then suddenly having the realization that you're sitting next to a tiger. That moment of fear where you'd be like, that's Definitely a tiger. <laughs> They're terrified because they realize the awesome power of Jesus that is sitting in the boat with them. Where just moments before they were scared of the storm, 
Now all of a sudden they're like, the scarier thing is in the boat with us. And so they get to the other side, and you can imagine they're still processing this. So he just told a storm what to do. And now we're over here, and now we have to spend the night. We gotta, this is, right? Like, you can, you can kind of feel them processing this. And then immediately, this crazy demon-possessed man shows up. Now, at this point, like, this is, this is old to them. Yeah, we've seen Jesus cast out a ton of demons. This is not a big deal. But this all of a sudden escalates in this show of intense power. This isn't just Jesus casting out a demon and claiming authority over an unclean spirit. This is an army of Satan meeting him at a beachhead. And Jesus stands up to it and just says, no, go. And they do. Beloved, the awesome power of our God can be stopped by nothing and no one. Satan can bring every piece of power and authority he has to bear against Jesus. And it does nothing. It does nothing. I want you to think about this for a minute. We talked about this idea of this Jewish imagery around abyss, right? And the idea of of deep, like, oceanic water and its connection to, like, God's judgment and separation, right? And so they're out over the ocean, and the storm swells up, and it's threatening to sink their boat, and Jesus shows his power and authority over a broken and cursed world, and he can stand out over the abyss and be in complete and total control. And here you have Satan's army trying to exert authority and manipulation over Jesus. Don't send us out of this world. We're enjoying ourselves too much. How about you let us go and to those pigs over there, kind of like a wink, wink, nod, nod until you leave, right? So Jesus says, sure, go into the pigs. And then what does he do? They freak out and run off a cliff and fall where? Into the abyss. Right? The the imagery there is Jesus being like, sure, you can jump in the pigs. And then he just sends them straight to judgment anyway. Right? Right? They think they can exert this power and this manipulation over Jesus. They, they show their strength and they think, ah, he's given pause. Now, now we have, we have some, some power in this situation. And Jesus is just like, no, you don't. You can do nothing to me. And he commands complete and total authority over physical and spiritual realities. Beloved, this story... That, that, by the way, was only really witnessed by Jesus' closest followers, so insanely, boldly, and plainly proclaimed Jesus' divine authority and power over this creation that it actually shifted his ministry. I mean, you can, ima- like, you can imagine, like, this is a whole different game for his followers now, Right? Up until this point, he's been preaching this this mysterious message. God is doing something new, right? You can can be a part of it. And he uses the parables. And we kind of talked about that weird tension where Jesus is like, some of you will see and get it, and some of you won't. Do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? And, And kind of the key to it for Jesus is, how with me are you? Remember, Pastor Jeff talked about the idea that, that there are a lot of people who, who crowded around Jesus for the purpose of what they could get from him. 
They could receive blessing from him. But Jesus sets up this distinction where he says, no, 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 no. How many of you are here to be with me? And in being with me and in being close to me, you will gain ears to ear, hear and you will gain eyes to see and the parables will make sense and the kingdom and the message will become clear and you will be a part of the work if you're with me, right? I'm going to be real with you. Jesus' disciples just got a big dose of with him. I guarantee you in this moment, as they watch a legion of demons flee for their lives from the presence of Jesus, they have eyes to see and ears to hear. You notice the first time Jesus responds with his immense divine authority, they pale in fear. The second time, they're just watching. Right? There's this, there's this reality that as Jesus shows his authority more and on a grander and on a larger scale, his disciples are starting to actually see what's going on. They're starting to actually open their eyes and realize, well, this, this is God. And he is, he's actually here to free us. He's actually here to, to break the curse. He's actually here to destroy oppression. And, and their eyes are opening to this. And then the new audience, right? The new people who walk on the scene and see Jesus' power for the first time, they go, uh, we can't handle this. you got to leave. It's intense, right? It's, it's, it's Jesus like flexing his spiritual muscles, his divine muscles, and just showing like, I'm doing this. I'm here, and I'm breaking the curse. It's happening. You want to be a part of it? Right? What, what I think is so interesting here, and I think this is going to give us kind of a landing place as we discuss this, is look how differently Jesus responds to this freed man than he has to people around him up to this point. Remember, up to this point, Jesus' whole thing has been, if you want eyes to see, if you want ears to hear, you need to be with me. Closeness, proximity, Hear my teachings, see my actions, live life with me, and you can have eyes to see and ears to hear, and you can be a part of this kingdom work. The freed man wants nothing more than to be with Jesus. Right? He experiences this intense freedom where he's lived in hell and torment for who knows how long, and Jesus shows up and frees him, and he just goes, I just want to be with you. Can I come with you? I just want to be with you. And Jesus tells him, no. Nah, man. Nah, you need to stay here. And there's, there's a million different things that kind of play into that and how interpreters engage this because it seems like such this strange tension, right? Like, wait a minute. His whole ministry up to this point has been follow me, be with me. And here's a guy who probably more so than anyone else actually gets it and wants to be with him. And he tells him, no, why? I think the reason is really simple. This man's eyes are fully open to the reality of the kingdom. He is fully aware of the power, authority, grace, love, and faithfulness of Jesus. He is actually in a place where he can go and do the kingdom work. Jesus' followers are still learning. Their eyes are still opening. Their ears are still opening. This guy is there. He went from hell to freedom. 
Just like that. And so Jesus tells him, go. Tell your friends. Tell everyone how faithful God has been to you. Tell them what God has done for you. Tell them of his mercy upon you. By the way, Jesus, the man, has done this work for this man and then tells him, go tell people how good God has been to you. Just totally declaring his deity. And this guy doesn't pause, doesn't hesitate. He goes, okay, yeah. And he goes and he spreads the gospel. This man is the first, on a side note, the first one to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. He travels the Decapolis telling people of what God had done, and it says everyone marveled. Remember, this man was well known. This man was understood by the community to be basically awful. And here he shows up in his right mind proclaiming the excellencies and faithfulness of God. God has had mercy on me. He has freed me. He has made a way for life for me. I, I no longer experience oppression and weight. Like I, I'm living in freedom. And like that, that's what God does. He's doing that. And people marvel at that. So this is, I think that's on a, I think, I think that's the difference, right? Is, is Jesus looks at this guy and he goes, you need to go be a part of the work. You need to go be a part of the work. Your eyes are open, your ears are open. You, you know. You need to go do the kingdom work. Join with me in this. This is going to be his message to his followers basically for the rest of his time with them. Listen, guys, you get this now, so you need to do the work. You get it. You know what's going on. You need to go do the work. Go proclaim the excellencies of God. Go proclaim his faithfulness to you, his mercy upon you. Go. You, you know your eyes are open, your ears are open. Go. Tell. This guy is ready to go and tell. So Jesus sends him. Doesn't allow him to stay with him. That leaves a couple thoughts open for us. And, and I, want, I, want to, I want to zone this in on two kind of, kind of divergent but, but simultaneous things that I think are important for us to chew on today. I, I don't I don't normally wrap, wrap a message around like this, but I think it's important for us today. The first one is this. And really, this is kind of the overarching question, but why, what is it that keeps us from being a part of the kingdom work? Right? What is it that gives us pause from going out and faithfully and boldly proclaiming the excellencies and love and mercy of our God? How faithfully and boldly are we doing that? Right? How, how much do our friends and family and coworkers know very plainly who God is and what He's done for us? And I don't say that to, to guilt you guys, because honestly, this is something that all of us have to chew on. Because we go, well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of considerations. I, you know, like I have to... I, if I'm too crazy at my work, like I'll be isolated from people and I could lose my job. Or, or you know, I mean, you wouldn't need to build a relationship with people. You don't want to freak people out and make them think you're some kind of religious nut. And then they'll be closed off to the gospel. So you need to build a relationship and friendship and have them. I mean, you need to have your neighbors over. And we, and we work. And listen, that's fine. That's fine. But it still begs the question, how, how intensely are we part of the kingdom work? Because I'm pretty certain all of us if we're gut-level honest, would admit, well, you know, I know it's important, and I'm even probably a part of it in places where I think I have authority or I think people will listen, but 
I mean, I'm not, you know, running around the whole country like this guy. Right? I think if we're all honest, we could admit that, that, that we, we know the value of the call to be a part of the kingdom work, and we, we believe that, but it's not like this all-encompassing thing for us. It's an aspect of our understanding of faith, but it's not, it's not everything. We're not giving all of our energy in person to the proclamation of the kingdom, myself included. I think it's worth asking ourselves why. And actually reflecting on that. Because we have a whole construct of reasons. We have a whole myriad of reasons why we're not given fully to that work. I have family to take care of. I have to do my job. I have to worry about relationships. I have to think about this. Yeah, we have a myriad of reasons. I think it's worth reflecting why we think those reasons outweigh the call to the gospel. That was awesome. It's worth thinking about that. I would, I would suggest to us, I, would, I want to throw this out there, and this might just be something we need to think about. I think if we have pause in being a part of the work, it probably in some way is connected to the fact that we have forgotten the faithfulness of God. I think if we had an eyes wide open, ears wide open, unavoidable, in our face experience of God's power and love and faithfulness, that something about that would supersede the rest of our life. And I think it is worth giving pause and asking how clearly we remember his faithfulness in our life. This man had nothing between him and God's faithfulness. There was no blinder. There was nothing blurring the image. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus in freedom from oppression and torment. And he knew, this is it. This is God and he has freed me and I'm going to tell everyone. We have things that get between us in that. The worries of this world, the worries of our life, the worries of our flesh, good things and bad things that put up scenery between us and the reality of God's powerful, faithful, miraculous love on our part. And it makes that call just less encompassing in our life. So in a couple minutes, we're going we're, we're gonna to close, we're gonna close our time out. We're going to have some time of worship and prayer. And in the beginning... I want to give you guys some opportunity to reflect on that. If you're in a space right now where you actually have some kind of mental roadblock between you and participation in the kingdom, I would invite you, I would beg you to reflect on God's faithfulness to you. His his covenantal love for you. his, His dogged pursuit of you. Because, beloved, if you... If you remember the faithfulness of God, you cannot help but be affected by it. And I I just think that we have put too much scenery between us and the reality of God's goodness in our lives. I think we have, and I think it's evidenced by this story in the totality of church history. 
All all of the church from, from this point until today, the people who have the least amount of junk cluttering the view between them and the faithfulness of God have the lives that are the most extremely given to the work of the kingdom. That is an unavoidable truth. And so if you find your devotion to the work of the kingdom cluttered or slow or pausing, I would invite you to take a few moments and clear out the scenery. And there's a second thing I want us to reflect on today, and that's this. Some of us, I don't think, necessarily have a bunch of scenery between us and God's faithfulness. I think some of us have closed ears and closed eyes. I think some of us are in this space, and we actually feel the weight of an oppressive, cursed, and broken world. And, and when I ask you what's keeping you from being a part of the work of the kingdom, something in your heart says, well, if I experienced freedom like that guy did, I would. But I haven't. I, I want to I throw this out there. We can read the story of Jesus calming the storm and it can become this beautiful mental picture, right? And we can think of the storms that hit us in life when circumstances get heavy and weighty and things in life just are hard and painful. And we can go, yeah, Jesus has authority over this world. But beloved, I would, I would encourage you to understand this. The storm that is raging inside this man's soul is so much greater and the storm that was experienced on the Sea of Galilee. That man was living in mental and spiritual anguish as as a hurricane of destruction raged in his heart. He was torn and scattered and hurt. And beloved, I think some of us probably need to relate to that image more than the first. I think some of us sit in this room and when we think about our own souls and our own, our, there's the calmness of our mind and the way we engage the world and the way we think about our relationships and our friendships and our family and our own person. Words like confused and, and storming and chaotic would come to mind. Beloved, if, if that is you this morning, man, Jesus has freedom for you. Beloved, I mean that. Jesus has freedom for you. There is, there is nothing in this world that is stronger than our sweet Jesus. He is, he is the stronger, strong man. He, he steps into your life and he, he grabs a hold of every aspect that, that Satan has twisted into you, whether it's your own flesh telling lies to you and bad habits and destructive things that have grabbed a hold of you or injustices people have done to you and things you've experienced. Every way in which this cursed and broken and dying world has distorted your soul, he grabs it and he owns it. Jesus cannot be bound. And there is, there is nothing raging in your heart that he cannot free. Beloved, the picture of discipleship is this. Sitting at the feet of Jesus in your right mind, clothed and free. This is what Jesus calls you to. And so here's what I'd like to do this morning. If you... 
need to sit and reflect on the callousness of your heart and the forgetfulness of your heart. If you need to clear out the mental clutter and remember that God is faithful, I would encourage you to do that, to ask Him to to remind you of His faithfulness in your life. But beloved, if you're here this morning and you just feel the weight of the curse on your shoulders, if you you hear this message about Jesus' strength and something in your heart longs for that freedom, I would encourage you to come find one of our pastors. Me, Mike, and Jesse are going to be up and around the room. If you just need a pastor to pray with you, to declare Jesus' freedom over you, I would encourage you to come find us and do that. We'll take a few minutes to do this, and then we'll end our time by singing some songs together and remembering God's faithfulness. Jesus, you are so good. Jesus, you're so strong. Jesus, you love us with a love that is, is not understandable. You pursue us with a relentlessness that is beyond comprehension. Jesus, you are faithful in our faithlessness. You are strong in our weakness. You are loving in our self-centeredness. Jesus, you have made a way for us to freedom and life. We haven't earned it. We haven't sought it. We certainly don't deserve it. But you made that way for us. Jesus, for for every heart in this space that has forgotten that, pierce us and remind us. God, shine a light on the things of this world that we may see them as petty and fading away. Turn our hearts to you that we may be fully given to you. And Jesus, to those of us whose hearts are a storm longing for peace, be God in our life. Give us freedom. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.